Uh, my name is Phil, one of the pastors. It's great to have you along. We're in the book of Philippians that Paul wrote to this church all those years ago and to us through them. And um, we're going to rip into that, that chapter, the 3, verses 1 to 16 again. So have it open. Let me pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, thanks for your word to us. Thank you that through Paul's pen you have written words that still resonate and are still real and still appropriate for us to not just hear, not just understand, but to actually um, put into practice. And we pray that you would help us to do that uh, for our glory and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Right, any golf fans amongst us? Anyone here like golf? Who's a golfer? Any golfers? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I knew you were, Sean. Look, I love golf. I'm terrible at golf. I'm rubbish at it, but I like it. I play golf every, what, once every two years or so. But I really enjoy golf. And it's not just because it's pretty scenery. Tell me where there's a, 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 a prettier places than golf courses. With the manicured lawns, the greens, the hills. You know, it's the, the wildlife. It's, it's just magnificent space. Uh, there's a few prettier places, I think, than golf courses. But that's not the only reason I like golf. I like golf, too, because it's, well, it's reasonably simple to understand there's a clear goal in mind. You stand at the tee, you look down the fairway, somewhere between you know, 120 and 500 metres away, there's a little white flag sticking out of a hole, and your goal is to get the golf ball in the hole in as few strokes as possible. It's simple. <laughs> okay, it's not that simple, is it? Right? Yes, it's simple. The goal of golf is easy to understand. That's not the hard part. That's the easy bit. It's just not that easy to do, is it? When I play golf, it's really frustrating. I never swear so much as when I'm on a golf course. <laughs> it's my shame that I say this. And it's not just the fact that there's a physical distance between me and the goal. There's obstacles and traps on a golf course too. There's bunkers and dams and long grass and you're playing longer. Heaps of kangaroos everywhere. <laughs> and it makes it all the more difficult. <clears throat> And there's another small factor. I just suck at golf. That's another issue. You know, it's not that I can't hit a reasonably long ball when I get onto one. I can, I'm a smasher ball. But I don't consistently hit a ball cleanly. And even when I do, my aim is all over the shot. I remember someone sitting, uh, standing at the golf. So, you know, which one was it? You played the city, Sean, you know what I'm talking about. On the first. Absolutely, it's a par five, so I've wound up, you know, got the shoulders back, I really give it some. I landed two fairways to the right. <laughs> That's how off I can be playing golf, right? It's not that I don't understand what's going on, I'm just not very good at it. Now imagine that a professional golfer, a professional out there at the City Golf Club, watches me tee off, sees me club a ball two fairways over, off course, comes up to me and says, hey mate, that's the white flag down there. <laughs> That, that's the one there, go for that. Now he wouldn't be wrong to do that, would he? He wouldn't be very helpful either. <laughs> uh, it's not the goal that's the problem, it's the physical, it's actually getting there that I'm struggling with. Now why I start with this is because I want us to treat this passage in Philippians that we're looking today like a bit like a, a hole in a golf course. I want us to think about this like we're actually standing on the tee, about to hit the ball towards a goal. So I want you to put on your figuratively, you know, your figuratively high the knee-high socks. Right, put them on, your tartan pants. I know Steve Fox has got a pair of these. So I'm asking for them. Put on your polos and your sweat, you know, your, your vest over the top. Put your flat cap on. Ladies, you're going to this as well. Make sure you're wearing yours as well. <laughs> and let's go for a stroll down this golf course, this figurative golf hole. Because you know what I love about the Apostle Paul when he writes these letters to the churches in the first century, particularly to the Philippians, and through them to us? You know what I like about him? He's not like the know-all golf pro who just points at the target and says, do that. That's not what he does. It's not what he's like. You know, what does Paul do that's different? 
is that he actually points to the different targets of the Christian life, like, goals, like, like holes on a golf course. And then with God's insight and God's authority through the Holy Spirit, he first reminds us of the core principles of the faith. He then helps us adjust our aim correctly. And then he points out the dangers. Don't go there, don't go there. See that there? That's no good. And then he walks alongside his readers and repeats those instructions as often as necessary. That's what Paul does. He's a fantastic, he's a champion golfer. And it's no different in this section. But, but, but as we stand on the tee, what's the first thing we want to notice? I want you to notice the goal that he wants Christians to aim for in this section. Did you notice that as we was read through? The goal that Paul is aiming for, he's saying that's what we're headed towards. It's at the end of the passage we just read. Have a look at Philippians 3.15 and read it with me again. This is what he says as he sort of brings this bit to a close. He says, All of us then who are mature should take such view of these things. And if some point, on some point you think differently, that too, God will make clear to you. Now, do you hear the target that he's aiming for here? Do you hear what, he's, what he wants Christians to aim for? It's Christian maturity, isn't it? It's Christian maturity that he wants us to, to take aim at. It's Christian maturity, that a Christian maturity that leads to a unified thinking based on God's word. That's what Paul wants the Philippians and us to be growing in, to be growing in maturity in, to be growing in a shared knowledge of such things. But that doesn't actually help us a little bit. We need a little bit more than that. What exactly is the topic? What are the such things that he wants Christians to be mature and agree upon? Well, from the context of the passage as a whole, I think specifically the idea is where you place your confidence for being found right with God. That's the specific aspect of Christian maturity Paul wants us to aim at together. That's the issue he wants to assure, ensure that you're mature in understanding, where your confidence is in being found right with God. And so before we even tee off today, that's the question to ask yourself. Whether you're sitting there personally, individually in the chair, or whether you're listening at home online, the first question to ask is, are you right with God? Are you in right standing before God? That's what righteousness means. And of course to answer that, you've got to work out what's the basis for how you answer that. What are you looking to as the foundation of your answer? See, Paul's helpful here. It's like a like the golf instructor. He's getting us to assess our aim even before we take a swing. And it is an important question to ponder, folks. It is a question to ask whether you're already a Christian here today or not. Maybe you've asked this question a thousand times before. Maybe you've never asked it. But it's right to do this because I'm assuming if you're here on a Sunday morning, it's because you've got some sort of inkling of a divine being. Some sort of inkling about an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good, creative entity outside of time, space and matter. You've got a sense of an other. And if you believe that there is this other beyond and above us, then the most important question you can answer in life, you must answer in life, is am I right with this other? <laughs> How can I be confident, can I be confident, that God will think well of me? How do I ensure that I stay on the right side, not the wrong side, of such an immense, unfathomable, unfathomable, creative, unstoppable force, entity, person, God? See, everyone asks this question at some point in their life, and it's right to do that. 
You might ask it a dozen times, but the important thing is how you answer it. Now, let me be very, very clear right off the bat. Paul wants us to answer this question rightly. He wants you to be aiming at the right flag. And so to make this very easy from the get-go, let me summarise Paul's answer very quickly in a way that I hope you'll remember. You'll see why. Here's the big thought that I think Paul's getting at. And if you remember nothing else in your leaving, remember this. When it comes to being right with God, trusting Christ is mature, anything else is manure. Right? Try and forget it. <laughs> trusting Christ is mature, anything else is manure. Right? Now, not only does it rhyme, but as we unpack that a little more, you'll see and understand why I've chosen those rhyming words. It's not without purpose. Mm-hmm. Right? Trusting Christ, that's mature. Anything else, that is manure. Right here. And it's important that we get this off the tee because in this passage, it, that, that little line will stop you from aiming at the wrong flag. In fact, it's this line, if you like, or this idea that immediately points out the biggest obstacle on the golf course. Because when it comes to where you put your confidence about being fight, found right with God, you know that my, my, my fear is that most people are aiming at the wrong time. When we should be aiming at trusting Christ to be right with God, that's mature. We either start aiming or we drift into aiming at an entirely different target, which takes us three fairways over. But let's look, let's just get from the beginning for a minute. Let's, let's look at how this plays out in the passage. Turn and look at Philippians 3, verse 1. Paul starts his little section here by repeating an instruction to rejoice in the Lord. You know, that's not the first time he said that. He uses that word rejoice or similar phrase at least seven, depending on how you chop it up, maybe seven to nine times in this very short letter. Rejoice, rejoice, I'll say again to you, rejoice. But look at 3 verse 1, why is he using this? Why is he telling them to rejoice in the Lord again? Look at verse 1, he says this, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same thing to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. You hear that? There's a purpose for why he's writing rejoice in the Lord. It's a safeguard. What does he mean by that? It's like getting them into the right mindset, having the right mentality before you take the figurative swing off the team. He wants them to be in the zone, as it were. You know, I don't know if this is true or not. I heard it once upon a time. If anyone's a golfing aficionado, they can confirm or deny this. Apparently, Tiger Woods' dad, when he was practicing his tee shots, would stand behind him with garbage tin lids and smash them together. Why was he doing that? He would do that so that he would learn to deal with background noise. He would learn to block it out altogether. So through this, he could get into that space where he had only eyes for the golf ball. It's pretty profitable for a golfer to be able to block out the background noise. True or false? I know, it's a good story. Yeah? Try that. Turn it off and see how See, Paul's way of preparing us and the Philippians on the T of this passage is to ensure that we're in the right mental space too. And that is a mental space of rejoicing in God. That's how to start this process. It's realising all the joy that is available, all the joy that is on offer in God, and relishing in it. Rejoice, he says. Rejoice that there is a God. Rejoice that he created you, that he's sustained you thus far, and rejoice that there is an opportunity to be found at peace with him. Rejoice in the Lord. It's a good space. It's a good mindset to get in and stay in throughout this golf game called life. So we're in the zone now. We're in the, we're in the mental space. Rejoice in the Lord. This is a good thing we're doing. And what's the next thing that the golf pro Paul does? Well, as it says, he points out the dangers and the traps to avoid. 
Don't hit it down there. And have a look at the first track. Look at it there in verse 2, he says. Watch out for those dogs. Those evildoers. Those mutilators of the flesh. Whoa, okay, that got heavy quick. What's he talking about? There's no little dogs involved here. What he's doing is he's using an albeit very unflattering metaphor to point to the biggest danger. And it's people who would teach others to put their, what he describes it as putting their confidence in the flesh. Well, I'll explain that a little bit more so you get a, a feel for it. If the target we're aiming for, if the target we're aiming for here is being mature in how we understand being right with God, then the first error or trap to avoid is by putting confidence in yourself. Confidence in the flesh. It's the first, biggest, and most commonly fallen into trap of people who want to be right with God. It's trusting themselves. Paul calls it putting confidence in the flesh. Now, do you recognise that as a temptation and a trap? Do you recognise that? Do you recognise how easily we go there? You should. It's the most common, the most common mistake, the most common misconception about relating to God. It seems as though quite naturally and unavoidably we think that it's about being good enough for God. That's how we relate to him. Or it's about finding evidence in yourself that would make God think well of you. That's how we relate to God. Isn't it? If you were to ask five of your friends or your colleagues or your workmates or your classmates, five people who you know who aren't Christians at the moment, if you were to ask them this week, suppose there is a God. Suppose for me for a moment that there is a God, that there is a heaven. On what basis will people be allowed in? You can ask it as generally as that is, right? Or if you want to just turn it up a little bit, make it a little bit more personal, on what basis will you be allowed in? What do you think? In fact, do it this week. Tell people you're doing church research or homework. It is. It would be interesting. Ask them, what do you think would be the basis on which God would accept people? Because I'm telling you, if you ask people and they're not already Christian, they don't understand the gospel, I guarantee you'll get one of three answers. Here, here they are, putting confidence in the flesh. Trap number one. They'll either start by pointing to some kind of past religious observance or practice. It's the first thing that we go to. Naturally, we just go there. It'll sound like something, uh, I got baptised as a baby, you know. Um, I did my holy community, my confirmation when I was a kid. Or if you're not from a Christianised background, if, if someone's maybe from a, a Muslim background or a, or a Hindu background or a Buddhist background, they may reference things like regular fasting or praying certain prayers at certain times of the day. Maybe even the occasional practice of meditation. But generally, the first trap, the first answer that people will give as to why they think God will accept them is some kind of religious observance. And then I'd add to that, it will be trap two, where they'll tell you about their pedigree, that is their family heritage. And again, if they're religiously inclined, there'll be things like, well, my family's always been church members, and my brother's father's uncle was a Presbyterian minister, and my grandfather is a well-known imam in a local mosque, or my sister's friend knew a woman who once shook hands with Gandhi and she blessed him. It was really powerful. <laughs> yeah. That will lead to some kind of family or relational link that seems positive. That'll be the second option that people go for. And there's nothing in noticeable or notable in either the religious observance category or the family heritage category. Then the third option, the third trap that people will always fall into, whether they're religiously inclined or not, is the personal performance trap. 
Personal performance either based on what they know or what they've done. Personal performance based on what they know. It might sound like something, uh, it might sound something like, you know, well, actually, I've studied a lot on uh, all religions, you know, I know blah, blah, about, uh, and yada, yada about this and that. And therefore, I'm confident that God will find me very well read, very well rounded, thoroughly useful to have around heaven. That's the reason I'm doing something. Well, they'll point to personal performance based on what they've done. That'll sound more like, I'm actually really a nice guy. I've always tried to treat people fairly and lovingly and never committed any serious crimes. I mean, I'm not perfect, but on balance, by comparison to most, I think God will find me fairly impressive. Now, have you ever heard those sorts of thoughts before? Have you ever used one of those thoughts before? Maybe possibly do you still think that this is the place to put your confidence or your hope that you will be found at peace and right with God. I don't want to be down on you if that's where you are. My contention is that every well-intentioned, nice, upright citizen would say something like this if they don't yet know Jesus. And these are the very traps, the very errors, the very disasters of thinking that Paul is trying to help the Philippians and us to avoid. Whatever it is, whether it's religious observance, family heritage or personal performance, Paul lumps all these into the category of confidence in the flesh and then literally describes them as being worth as much as a pile of food. <laughs> how does he do that? Because I'm not even joking. That's literally how he describes it. Look at this. This is how he describes it verse 4. See, when Paul references dogs and evildoers and mutilators of the flesh in verse 2, he's referring to a bunch of religious people, teachers called Judaizers. In fact, he specifically names these guys in the letter to the Galatians. The Judaizers were religious teachers who taught that faith in Jesus is good, right and proper, you should, you should trust Jesus, but that you also had to follow Jewish customs and practices, like circumcision for young boys. That's why he calls them mutilators of the flesh. And they taught that if you didn't keep these Jewish customs or follow these Jewish religious practices, that God would reject you. And so they had a Jesus plus model. You need Jesus, but you need this also. Now listen to Paul's response to them for a minute. Listen to this. Listen. He entertains their idea for a second. Verse 4. Verse 4. Talking about putting confidence in the flesh, Paul says, read it with me, verse 4, he says, I myself have reason for such confidence. Verse 5, he says, if someone thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he plays this game out with them. Let me paraphrase. He says, you want to talk religious observance? I was circumcised when I was eight days old. That's the perfect standard for Jewish tradition. Eight-day-old baby, that's when I got circumcised. You want to talk family heritage, says Paul, verse 5? I'm a natural Israelite. My family comes from the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin. I am a Hebrew of Hebrew. You want to talk personal achievement, performance, says Paul? Well, in terms of my knowledge of the law, I'm a Pharisee. I am the top 1% of the top 1%, the elite of the elite. I've forgotten more about the law than you'll ever know. In terms of my conviction, I eagerly went up against anyone who disagreed with the traditions of Judaism. We've got lots of records of Paul persecuting the early church and the Christians in Acts. And not just that, in terms of law-keeping, says Paul, I don't just know the law, but I did everything necessary to be considered faultless according to the law 
Now the difference there between Paul's not claiming to be perfect, but rather he's claiming that he's followed the Old Testament law so carefully. It means he's sacrificed what he needs to do, he's tithed, he's fasted, he's prayed. He's done everything that he's that he needs to do to be found faultless in his law keeping. Paul all, Paul is saying that if anyone could be right with God on their own merits, it's him. He says, I'm the one. You want to go down there the flesh? Let's do it. I'll smash you. But listen to what he says next, verse 7. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. In fact, skip down to the end of verse 8. He says of these things, I consider them. Depending on your translation here, you'll have a word like garbage or refuse or rubbish, rubbish or filth. And they're all fine translations of this word that describes something useless and disposable as intended. But the actual Greek word used here is most commonly used to refer to human excrement. It's as close to a swear word as you'll find now. In fact, some of the old English translations, you've got a King James in front of you, you'll have dumb there. I consider it dumb. I wasn't just trying to be funny when I put that poop emoji in there. No, it's funny. <laughs> That's what Paul considers his fleshly achievements, impressive as they were. He says they're not worth a pinch of poop. And friends, this is how you should consider your personal performance, your achievements, your family heritage. Consider it in the same fashion, because when it comes to being found right and in right standing before the God of the universe, those things are as worth as much as a handful of dung. Pretty punchy raw stuff. He's not pulling punches and he doesn't, he doesn't intend to. It's, yeah, it's visceral, isn't it? <laughs> so what's the alternative? Is there an alternative? Because if Paul is saying that there's no way to be right with God based on your performance, and that's exactly what he's saying, then is there another way? Is there an alternative? And of course the answer is yes. Look at how he follows this up in verse 8. So the alternative to putting confidence in the flesh, the alternative is to placing your confidence in Christ. Look at how he puts this in verse 8. He says, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ as my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, done, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Now get this bit that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Now, do you hear the difference? Because it is an eternal difference. When it comes to being found right with God, your options are your own performance, done placing your faith and trust in Jesus and thereby receiving God's free gift of righteousness through him, right standing through Christ. Let me work this back into our golfing analogy for a minute, just so you get what I'm talking about here. So you can play the golf game of life and submit your own scorecard at the end of 18 holes and be certain that it will amount to a pile of poop. Or you can accept God's offer of Jesus' scorecard to be counted as yours. And what's Jesus' scorecard look like? He slotted aces on every hole. He carted a perfect total of 18 shots through 18 holes. Which scorecard would you like to receive? Yours or his? See, that's, that's the choice that's before you without Christ. That's the choice that's before everyone all the time. 
on whose performance are you putting your confidence in being found right with God? Yours or Christ's? See, if you haven't yet, then you ought now pray and ask that God would accept Christ's score in place of yours. And because of that, rejoice. Because when it comes to being found right with God, trusting Christ is mature, everything else is Now, it'd be easy to sort of pack the show up there and say that's the end of it. But it's not the end, folks. Did you notice? We haven't even taken a swing. We're still on the tee of this metaphoric golf course. But before you put your clubs away, notice something else. Notice that trusting Jesus' scorecard, that if you trust Jesus' scorecard will be accepted by God as yours, it doesn't mean you get to sit down yet. It doesn't mean you get to go back to the proverbial clubhouse and drink schooners until you die or Jesus returns. Sorry about that. No, no, no. You're still in this game of life. You still must complete the 18 holes. But if you're genuinely trusting that Jesus' scorecard will be counted as yours, that doesn't mean you start hitting the ball in any direction you like now. No way. Contrary to popular belief. doesn't mean you just sort of whack it over there, whack it over there, whack it somewhere else. Where are we going now? No! Contrary to popular belief, contrary to the belief of the movies, Jesus isn't an excuse now to live however you feel. You know, the movie character that's often portrayed, you know, he thinks because he goes to church on Sunday morning, what he does between the hours of like Sunday afternoon to Saturday night, doesn't matter. That's not the attitude of someone who's genuinely trusting Jesus. That's the attitude of someone who's pretending to trust Jesus. Now, if you're genuinely trusting Jesus' scorecard as your own, he now becomes the motivation and the reason and even the ability to finish your round of golf well. You see, genuine Christians don't try and live good lives in order to make themselves right with God. They seek to live good lives because they've been made right with God through Jesus. And living well is one of the ways you get to respond and to honour him as Lord and Saviour and your proxy golfing fishing out. You see, genuine Christians still make mistakes, folks. It's one of the, one of the uh, key aspects, I think, of genuine Christianity. Genuine Christians still make mistakes. You'll still shank the odd, slot, the, old, the odd shot. You'll still find the sand or the water from time to time. You may be in a bunker at the moment. You may be in a bunker again at the moment. But if your confidence is in Christ, and if you are aware and you know and you trust that Jesus' scorecard has been submitted on your behalf and accepted by God, then you can address the ball in all the bunkers of life again and again and keep whacking it and whacking it and whacking it and whacking it. You've actually got the confidence and the reason and the assurance to hit that ball as often as is necessary because Christ's score has been submitted on your behalf. It means you can be real and realistic about the fact that you're actually not that good at this thing called life. Or golf, for that matter. <laughs> but because of Jesus, you can press on because now he is your life. In fact, this is exactly where Paul rounds out this section. Subtle golf, uh, you notice it? Rounds out. <laughs> Sometimes we'll point this out. This is how he rounds out this section. In fact, look at me with, at verse 12. Note the realism in Paul's attitude here. He says in verse 12, Not that I have already obtained all this, or have arrived at my goal, 
but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Now, do you hear the realism in Paul's voice here? Do you hear the realism in his attitude? He's very realistic. He understands. He's not perfect when he writes this. But do you hear the reason that he can press on? He presses on because he realised that he'd been perfected in Christ. He himself is not perfect, but he's been perfected in Christ. And so, he says, verse 13, he's able to do something that we all need to do. Verse 13, forgetting what is behind him. How necessary do we need to think and rethink and remember and apply that? Forget what is behind me, no longer identified or defined by the mistakes of your past, though they may be many. Forgetting what is behind me, he says in verse 14, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenly in Christ Jesus. See, back there when Paul says, I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus uh, sorry, I, I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. There's a very deliberate use of the phrase that took hold, took hold. He's doubling that up. Why? It's a bit like saying, I push forward to win the prize for which Christ has won for me. I push forward to win the prize which Christ has won for me. Where's your confidence to be found right with God? It's in Christ. He's won the prize, so go on and win it. <laughs> and then we get back to where we started, verse 15. And all of us then, who are mature, should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think different, that too God will make clear. So friends, as we wrap up, when it comes to where you place your confidence in being found right with God, at the end of your days, where you put out your last hole on the Adam, the Adam hole of life, Trust in Christ, that's mature. Anything else? I think you can know how to finish that. Friends, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. And we thank you that despite our poor performance, in fact, because of our poor performance, you sent Jesus to live the life that we should have lived, to die the death that we deserve to die. And in so doing, he submitted a perfect scorecard on behalf of all who would trust him rather than trusting themselves. And Father, we ask that you would do that for all of us here today, that by your Spirit you would transform us so that we would put our trust in Christ, that you would help us as a result of being found at peace with you in him, help us genuinely to, genuinely to repent and to turn away from all the areas of wrongdoing in our life. And to help us to continually avoid the traps of putting confidence in the flesh again. Whether we're trying to do that by despairing in ourselves and when we're not going so good and therefore making less of Christ than he deserves. Or whether we're prone to overinflated senses of uh, pride and worth when we think our own performance is going good and therefore make less of Christ than he deserves. Father, give us single-minded devotion and attention to Christ's performance on our behalf. That we might at the end of the day be found mature in him, not having the righteousness of our own that comes through our performance. The righteousness that comes through faith, that is yours through faith in Christ Jesus. And help us to encourage others in sin. We ask it for Jesus' name. Amen.